Go with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And then you can also turn to Acts 2. That's the main two places we're going to be. Now, have you watched a game lately? Um, I asked a question on the front of your outline about March Madness. Um, my March Madness has already kind of come and gone. Okay? Uh, the, the teams I'm watching are already, you know, they're already home eating potato chips. But, um, but um, have you ever watched a game... And, and when you looked back on it, or maybe you read an article about it the next day, I, I'm crazy. I like to hear the people talk about the game I'm getting ready to watch and then watch the game and then hear them talk for a couple of days about the, the game that, was, you know, that I just watched. Um, somebody will talk about what the turning point was in the game. You know, where, where did it really go? begin to go our way? Now, what would that feel like? Because the games have not gone our way lately, but okay. Um, isn't it what when was it the clearest that that boy this was the turning point in the game and the turning point in the season what i want to talk to you about today is what i would call and what i believe the bible describes as the turning point in history when was it clear that god would be victorious now i've got a, i i asked that question in faith because there are sometimes still that we wonder God, when are you going to fix this? When are you going to settle this? When will truth win? But the story that we're going to deal with today that was predicted in the Old Testament uh, really had to deal with, um, had to be dealt with by those of Jesus' followers who, upon those who made it, by the way, to the foot of the cross, had all their hope turned to despair. And yet, that hope was realized three days later. We're going to deal with that. We're going to look at two texts in, in uh, uh, Psalm 110 and Acts 2 that show that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the absolute turning point in history. Okay? Now, uh, let's go to Psalm 110. At the time that this was written, David was king. Um, and, and the nation was, in many ways, at the zenith of its political power, of its economic power, and of its uh, kind of military might. Um, it was at the high day for worship for the nation. And yet, interestingly, the nation of Israel was still really small and insignificant compared to the great nations around them. Egypt, for instance. Um, um, if Israel's God, and it's interesting, Israel claimed, even though there was this little bitty nation surrounded by great big nations, Israel claimed that their God was the true God, the only God. Do you catch the irony of that claim? And the question had to be asked by the people sometimes. If our God is the true God, then wouldn't we be much more powerful than we are? So... Uh, the answer to, those que- to that question seems to take kind of two streams. Let me share that with you just a little bit. Okay. Um, first, Israel's God has always, it seemed like, intentionally taken the side of the weak and the seemingly insignificant. And I use that word seemingly um, uh, intentionally. Our God is, it seems like, intentionally taken the side of the weak and the insignificant. Uh, so that would provide at least one answer to this. Um, 
Victory through human weakness means that humans like you and me can't take the credit. If God has taken my side and if he's pleading my case for me, then I can't take the credit for victory, can I? Well, secondly, if Israel's God, uh, if it seemed like the tide had not turned in human history, the word yet needs to come at the end of that, okay? I think it seems really clear that when God teaches or when, when history kind of takes its best out of Israel in, in the nation's history and even in the Gospels, it is clear to me that God has said, I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. There's something yet to come. He declared, in fact, that he was not finished. I think it's interesting. When did God ever declare that he was finished? On the cross. Isn't that interesting? The plan is completed. Okay. And then you and I know the, the uh, next chapter after that. Now, let's go. Bob, you're back there. Got your teal blue shirt on so I can see you even from up here. Would you read the first four verses of Psalm 110? Aren't you glad that he had to pronounce Melchizedek instead of you? Okay. All right. We're going to talk about who Melchizedek is and what his importance is. Now, um, okay, when this is written, it is a psalm celebrating the authority that God gave Israel's king. All right. Now, we've already said that Israel in David's day is strong, stronger than it's ever been, but it's insignificant in terms of world power. So there's a promise here to the king and a promise for the future. All right, now, um, uh, I want you to look carefully because we've got to unpack some con a confusing turn of phrase in the first six words of, Isaac, of um, Psalm 110. First six words. The Lord says to my Lord. Did you ever say something like that? Okay. Isn't that confusing? Uh, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, Kind of like, uh, you remember the movie, What About Bob? <laughs> what About Bob? When Bill Murray says, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm schizophrenic and so am I. I mean, it, yeah. Okay. Um, is God talking to himself here? Well, not exactly. Okay, now there, if you'll notice, especially if you're reading the NIV, if you're reading something else, I think it's going to probably give you a similar look. Let me look at mine. I'm looking at New American Standard. Um... Well, in, in some translations at least, the word Lord, the first occurrence of the word Lord, is capitalized and the second one is not. And that's intentional. Okay? Are, are you both are? Mine both are. But I think the NIV, the second Lord, is not. Is that right? Okay. Okay. Now, th there's a reason for that. Okay? Um, uh, one of the things that's kind of dealing with, this is dealing with here, is um, the first 
the Lord says, okay, that one is the word that they are just so afraid to translate in the Old Testament. It's the word that you and I sometimes translate, uh, that we'll see translated without any vowels in it, Yahweh. Okay, God Almighty, that's the one that, that's the one that, typically refers to God. The second word is a different word, and it could mean uh, a little bit something, a, a shading of a little bit something different. Um, uh, it translates a kind of a different word. They both in some ways refer to God, and I want to explain that. Now, one of the things that you and I need to understand, this is a watershed verse. This section here is a watershed uh, passage. This verse in particular, verse 1 of Psalm 110, is quoted eight times in the New Testament, including, by Jesus, in, including uh, Jesus himself uses it. Sounds like it might be kind of important. So I probably ought to kind of come to terms with it. Is, okay, is David talking about, and this is the kind of the question here, is, is the second Lord here, talk, is David talking about himself? God says to me, now some people probably interpret that way, that seems a little silly to me. Okay, uh, Why is he referring to himself? If so, he's referring to himself in the third person, which is kind of odd. Okay, Who is the second? Is it David? Well, I think we find the answer in the New Testament, believe it or not. Go with me to Matthew 22. Okay, Matthew 22, which, by the way, you would have on your outline if you were looking at your outline. Sorry. I, I got one. You can't have mine. It's all filled out. Okay. Matthew, Matthew 22. Would somebody read verse... 41 down to 45. Five verses. Matthew 22, 41 through 45. Somebody read that? This is Jesus talking. He's going to use the passage that we're dealing with here. Somebody? Interesting. Isn't that kind of beautiful? Jesus kind of takes the lid off of it while he's still living before Calvary, okay, before the cross. Jesus says, David's not talking about himself. The Lord, capital L, Yahweh, is, is saying to my Lord. He's talking about somebody else, not about David. And he's talking about putting... All of his enemies under his feet. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting reference. Um, the idea um, uh, actually comes back in the book of Hebrews when this is quoted again, uh, when, when um, the Bible, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews will talk about uh, God making his enemies a footstool for his feet. It's literally a, a, a term of vanquishment or victory where uh, you, you've seen it in the final four, you know, symbolically, a uh, few minutes, one minute before the, the closing buzzer, the victor already had their boot on the other person's neck. This is a symbol of victory, okay? It's clear here that it's not David that's being talked about. 
Jesus interprets it for the Pharisees that surround him in his day. It's David's son he's talking about. And we're not talking about Solomon. It's the one who will be known. It's the one uh, to whom the blind men shouted, by the way, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? So it is appropriate that God the Lord is talking to the Lord. Isn't that funny? That's kind of interesting. It's appropriate that the Lord is talking to the Lord. All right? Can you imagine what the supper table is like at the the Trinity household? Lord, would you pass the salt? Yes, Lord. Here you go. Thank you, Lord. Okay, got it? All right? That was silly. Lord, forgive me. Now, look at verse... uh, Verse 2, it says the scepter will be extended. Now, what's, what's the scepter talking about? Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 2. The scepter of a king always implies authority. Authority. Now, um, and it's talking about the authority that extends from Zion. Now, boy, there's a lot of study on Zion. I don't want to get into Zionism and all that kind of stuff this morning. But we'll, we'll kind of use the reference at least to talk a little bit of it here about um, uh, there, there's kind of a turning about of things. Zion is, is um, the mountain upon which Jerusalem is built. And so David has already conquered Zion when he conquered the ancient city of Jebus that we talked about a week or two ago. But it's also from Zion that the victory of Calvary takes place. Think about that just for a minute. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful image. Now, look at verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Kind of the, the, the interesting thing here, or, or the, the appropriate thing that we look at here, is God is arrayed, the king is arrayed in holy splendor. Now that, if you're looking at the NIV, it's going to say, the king is arrayed in holy splendor. Um, who can you think of um, more than, this is a rhetorical question, more than the Messiah that would ever be arrayed in holy splendor and ever arrayed in anything but holy splendor? Okay. Uh, it's just kind of important that we catch that. Who is it that's arrayed in holy splendor? Is it David? No. We know that David had problems with holiness at one time or another. Right? So, who is, arrayed, who is it that's arrayed in holy splendor? It's the coming king of David. The son of David. Uh, what we called last week. What did we call him last week? You remember? I'm trying to remember. What we <laughs> we've called him the servant king. Today we're going to call him the forever king. Who is it? The ra- it's him that's arrayed in so holy splendor. And what is the response of his loyal of his subjects? Loyalty. Did you catch that? When you call, we'll answer. Uh, it's the idea of loyalty. God promises the king. He says to the king, uh, your subjects will follow you with loyalty. And the king is again clarified here. Now, my question is going to be to you and me, how loyal of a subject am I? 
when he, came, when he calls the right answer. Him 289 in the Red Book that I grew up with. May he find me in my place when my king shall call for me. How loyal a subject of the king, the real king, the forever king, am I? That's kind of the question. All right, now, uh, interesting in verse 4, this person, this mysterious person of the Old Testament is invoked by the name of Melchizedek. Now, you can read about him in several places. You're going to read about him initially in Genesis 14, uh, which is referenced on your outline, which you don't have. Uh, but it's all, but Melchizedek is mentioned a couple of times in the book of Hebrews because the, the Hebrews writer is trying to, uh, to trying to connect the dots for us. So go with me, if you will, to Hebrews 5. That's almost to the end of your New Testament. Hebrews 5, we're going to read verse 5 down through 10 in just a minute. Who is this Melchizedek person? Well, in the Old Testament, in uh, Genesis 14, he is a, he is a kind of an ancient king, uh, I'm sorry, an ancient priest, whom Abraham pays tribute to after defeating uh, the kings in battle. Okay, Abraham, uh, Melchizedek, he, he, he is visited by Melchizedek, and he pays Melchizedek a tithe of uh, what he wins in battle, of kind of the booty from the battle. Right? And he's become, then he kind of comes on the scene, leaves the scene, nobody kind of really knows where he came from, where he went to, nor why Abraham is paying him a tithe. Um, and so there's some conjecture about that. But there's also this idea that the Messiah king will come, this holy king will come also as a priest, but not a priest like Aaron, but a priest like Melchizedek. Now, let's read, somebody if you will, Hebrews 5, read 5 down through 10. Hebrews 5, 5 through 10. Thanks for attempting to pronounce that name. That's, that's a tough deal. Uh, um, okay, in the, in, in the Bible here, um, uh, the idea is presented in the book of Hebrews and really in the Gospels and in predictive literature that the king, the forever king, will also serve as a priest. By the way, Peter makes a connection that so do you and me. Uh, kings and priests, you know, kind of that idea. Um, as, as his brothers and sisters. But the king will also serve as a priest. And, and the book of Hebrews then makes the connection here, as does Psalm 110, that um, this priest will not be an, a, a priest in the line of Aaron. Now, what's interesting about that is that Aaron, when um, there was no Aaronic priesthood, there was no Levitical priesthood at the time that Melchizedek comes on the scene and, and uh, Abraham gives him his tithe. So... Um, uh, there's no Levi yet, right? 
There's no Moses yet. There's no Aaron of the tribe of Levi. Abraham is living. There's no Isaac and no son of Isaac named Jacob who had a son named Levi who had sons, who had sons, who had sons eventually uh, on the tribe that uh, Moses and Aaron were born as brothers into. Okay, So it's interesting. This priest who's coming won't be in the line of Aaron. He won't be in the line of Levi where all the priestly uh, persons came from. He's going to be in the line of Melchizedek. Well, that's Im- immediately, those who knew the Old Testament scriptures would think, Melchizedek? Well, he was a guy that we don't even know where he came from. We don't know where he went. He kind of seems kind of eternal. <laughs> wow. Bingo, you got it. His priesthood has no beginning and no ending. He will rule from heaven he will reign from heaven, and he will hear our prayers from heaven. Cindy? I'm not sure that that point is being made here in Hebrews, but you're right. I'm just not sure that specifically Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7 is talking about, um, they're trying to make this connection in the whole book of Hebrews of Jesus being our great high priest. Uh, Better than anything that's come before. Better than the angels. Better than any other earthly priest. And so the connection here has the idea of of, um, what kind of a priest is he? Well, he's not one who was born of, of, of Levitical descent. He's born, he's a Melchizedekian priest, which is an eternal one is kind of the idea. What are you grinning about, Roll? Melchizedekian? Did you know you could make that into a, an adjective? I can make that name into whatever, you know. Uh, have you act, acted Melchizedekianly today? You know, I could, I could do that. I can make an advert. Okay. You know, it does sound kind of good as a milkshake, doesn't it? I'll have a Melchizedek with, okay, never mind. All right. Okay. Now let's go to Acts where Peter helps us apply this. Acts 2, this is on the day of Pentecost, all right? Now you've got to kind of catch this. What does Pentecost mean? 50 days. It's 50 days from what? 50 days from Passover, which for our purposes mean it's 50 days from Calvary, all right? What has been going on since then? Lots of stuff, all right? There's been a resurrection on day three, there's been a visitation by the Lord for the next 37 days, 40 days or so. And then, um, then he says in Acts 1, he says, he, he, trans, he ascends back to the Father and he says, I want you to hang on here till the Holy Spirit comes. And that's what happens in Acts 2. Peter is preaching the first sermon of the new church. All right? Let's go to 22 and, and begin to read there. Here's a, let's just read. Somebody read 22 down through about 25. We'll stop there for right now. Can you stop right there, John? I'm, I want you, I'm going to come right back to you, okay? Now, was Jesus, one of the questions they were dealing with, because Jesus did things while he was on the earth that 
were clearly godly. God had blessed him or he couldn't have done the miracles he did. But because of the cross, people are asking, okay, was, it, was he accredited? This is what goes in your, your, your blanks here. Was he accredited or was he abandoned by God? Was he accredited or was he abandoned by God? Yeah, you don't need the blanks, do you? Sorry. Um, and, and what does it say right there in, in the first verse you read, John? Was he accredited or abandoned? He was accredited. Okay, what he did, even the cross accredits him, but certainly uh, by God he's accredited. Now, um, was the cross, the question is, and it kind of rings through history somewhat, was the cross an abandoning by God? And Peter is ask, asking, answering that question right here. Now, John, go ahead and read verse 23 and 24. Okay, now, look at, let's look at what we think about the cross. Was Jesus' death an accident? No, it wasn't. God meant to do that. God designed that. The cross didn't mean God's disfavor. In fact, you could argue it meant just the opposite in verse 24. Now, look at verse 25. Actually, let's go back to verse 24. How did God react to the slaying of the forever king, the son of David? How did God react to the slaying of the son of David in verse 24? He raised him back to life. Is that simple? It was not simple to do, obviously. Only God can do that. But you and I have got to kind of think about this. How did God react to, in fact, Peter says, Peter, you've got to figure he's pointing a, a bony, fishhook-pierced finger. Okay, he probably didn't use fishhooks. He used nets, right? But his hands are rough. He's pointing a bony finger. Uh, uh, John, when I think of this, I think of John Conley, one of your predecessors, who when he would, he had long fingers. And he, he was a piano player. When he, would, when he would point a finger, it had a hook on the end of it. I mean, he would, I think of, you know, and he would kind of make it do this. I always felt the conviction when he, when he talked because he was that kind of preacher, but especially because he had that big long finger pointed at me. <laughs> Peter would point his finger at them and say, you did this, you put him to death. Wow. But was it an accident? Was it in, what God meant to do this, he says. And what's, what's clear from that? Well, God meant to do it because guess what he did? He meant also to bring him back to life. Now, uh, he brings him back to life. How does this affect, the, the idea here, is how does the resurrection, how does God bringing Jesus back to life, the forever king, how does it affect the way you do life? Larry, can I pick on you this morning? When you and I talked briefly this morning, when we talked for a moment on Tuesday morning, what Tracy's going through, i got a couple of ways I can respond to that. I can respond to it by faith, or I can do it like everybody else does. I can respond to it in light of the God I serve is alive and kicking. He's active. He's available. Or I can say, well, here we go again. Like the rest of the world. 
I can try to fix everything myself and fret over it like I'm the only one responsible for this deal. Or I can remember that the one who God intentionally allowed to go to the cross, he also intentionally raised from the dead. And he's alive. And and what he did, I may not get through much more of this, but I'm going to get through this. You ready? What happened then, as we read through the rest of Acts 2, is Peter is making the application for us. He's making the connection that when God raised him from the dead, he sat him on a throne. Guess what throne? David's throne at the right hand of the Father. When Stephen is martyred in Acts 7 and 8 and through there, when Stephen is martyred, he looks to heaven. He sees Jesus in heaven, and Jesus rises from that throne to welcome him to heaven. What a wonderful picture. But he's at the... Stephen says, I see the Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Wow. There's a forever throne, too. And the forever king's sitting on it. And he is ruling over the affairs of my life as a loyal subject of the forever king. There have been times in my life, I bet there have been in yours, maybe, when I have not been a loyal subject. When I've tried to kind of take things in my own hands, make my own decisions, call my own shots. Can I tell you something? It's never gone all that well. It's just never gone all that well. But Peter says, the God that you killed, remember that bony finger? The God that you killed, he says, to those that were listening to him in the first century. God raised him up. Like he said he was going to do. Let's read 26, 27, uh, down through, well, let's go 26 through 32. Somebody read that. Now, the connection that's made with God raising Jesus from the dead that Peter's going to help us apply here is that people, faithful people, can cease to fear the worst. Think about it. Think about it. Um, Harry, Skeet and Evelyn lost Jessica this week. I don't know if you heard that story or not. This little girl that they've been taking care of for 18 years that wasn't supposed to live three months died this weekend and um, um, but all the language that I'm hearing from them is language of resurrection she has never been able to function as a normal child now she is completely whole and normal that's language of resurrection 
Isn't it wonderful that God in the empty tomb and in the cross has taken the fear out of death. He's taken the sting out of it. I don't have to worry about it. That's, great. That's mankind's great fear. And so uh, David here, uh, um, Peter is quoting David here and, and dealing with that even David had a belief that death wouldn't be final. Even David had a death, a belief that death wouldn't be final. And David didn't know about it until he got there. He, couldn't talk, he could talk only hypothetically about it until he got there. But Jesus could talk about it because for 40 days, he's walking the planet having come back from death. Can, I hear, can you hear me with that? 500 people saw him walking this planet after the resurrection. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I want to take you to a, it's not an obscure passage. It's, it's really important to, to the scriptures. 2 Samuel 12, I'm going to go to. If you don't want to go there, I'm going to, I'm going to read it to you. David has committed his great sin with Bathsheba. Now, one of the results of that great sin is Bathsheba um, becomes pregnant with a child. It's a little boy. And the little boy gets sick. And the little boy dies. David has been inconsolable why the child has been sick. He feared he was going to die, and he's been inconsolable. He does the weirdest thing any king has ever done in the Old Testament, kind of. He's... he's, um, not eating, he's not sleeping, he's praying constantly. And when, he, when they bring him the news that the child is dead, he gets up and, and cleans up and says, would you fix me something to eat? Here's what 12, I think it's 1223, 2 Samuel 12, 23. Here's a David's statement of faith. And he didn't know what you and I know. I'm going to back up a verse. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Here's a statement of faith. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David really believed that he would see his little baby son again. He believed that by faith, not having ever been to heaven, But Jesus, when he talks about you don't have to fear death, he's been through death and back. Can can you catch that? He takes the great fear of mankind. And all the faithful can now share in that great hope. Okay, I want to contrast two great leaders of history as we close. Many call Abraham Lincoln our greatest president. Many call him the greatest leader of all time. I would, not, um, I would not argue with probably either one of those in terms of human history and, and human accomplishment. Um, if you are, um, would like to do that, you can go to Springfield, Illinois. Fossards, have you ever been to Springfield, Illinois? Have you seen the 117-foot-tall obelisk or whatever that marks um, uh, Abraham Lincoln's tomb? But I'm guessing that scientists could, if they'd let him, which they're not going to let him, could take, um, could exhume that body, take some DNA samples, and actually prove whether or not Abraham Lincoln is there in that place, right? They can't do that with Jesus. Is it only because it's a 2,000-year-old grave? Uh Uh-uh. It's because there's nobody there. Okay? Isn't it wonderful that 
all of the combined 2,000 years of history could have produced a body, guys. Let's be honest. Uh, they had the Romans and uh, the, uh, the priest's guards, the high priest's guards. They could have produced a body if there was one three days later, but they never produced one. And certainly, if they had been able to do that, if they were looking for the, the Lord's DNA, guess where they're going to find it? They're going to find it at 8.30 on Sunday morning in this room. Did you know it? Did you know that you live with the forever king's DNA imprinted into your life? That happened by faith when you said, okay, Lord, I've decided to follow you. No turning back. No turning back. You have the Lord's blood coursing through your veins. The forever king. The eternal king. The one that David could only look forward to. The one that God said in Psalm 110 and is quoted eight times in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, I've made all your enemies a footstool for your feet. He raised him from the dead so that you and I could live a brand new life. Are you living it? Today, these days, I am more interested in living a resurrection quality life than I've ever been. These days, I'm more interested in living eternal life now. Do you know you can do that? You don't have to wait till heaven to live eternally. Live it now. Okay, next week, uh, on that outline that I'm going to promise you next week that we hope we'll get, we're going to go to the book of Revelation. Revelation 3, 5, 6, and 22, if you can kind of mark that in your head somewhere. 3, 5, 6, and 22. We're going to talk about his worthiness, all right? I'll see you next week.